Arananga has been described as a major new literary talent and has already been stacking up awards. He is a contributing writer on Māori affairs for the spin-off and other publications. He won the short story and poetry competitions at the Ronald Hugh Morrison Literary Awards last year and has just published his first novel called The Bone Tree, which is receiving some great reviews. Now, this is all very interesting considering he hated English at school. In fact, he hated school and left to become a cage fighter. Now, born and raised in Pātea, Arananga is from great pedigree. Yes, he is from the talented Ngariwa Fanau. His aunt's a Spotswood College principal, Nicola, and the Party Māori co-leader, MP Debbie Ngariwa Packer. He's 28, a year nine teacher, and also, I think, a kickboxing champion. He joins me in the Wellington studio. Morena, Arana. Tēnā koe, Anna, o tērā tēnā koutou e te unga e whakarongo mai ana. How are you going this morning? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you so much. Uh, firstly, congratulations on the book. Uh, I finished it at one o'clock the other morning. It is um, it is absolutely remarkable. A beautiful story. Thank you. It's really, really lovely. Um, I want to talk about the book in a moment, but but the one thing, as I was reading all the material about you, uh, one of the things I found most fascinating is how you hated school so much especially English, and and reading as well. And yet here you are, a teacher and also a writer. How on earth did that come about? It's a really interesting story, actually. Uh, at the launch at the Party of Māori Club last Tuesday, I'd heard a story I'd never heard before. So it was my understanding that I was almost kicked out of every school, primary, intermediate, high school. But I had a reasonably good time at Guangareo, a Māori medium kindergarten. But it turns out that, no, actually, the head teacher at that school tried to get me to leave as well. But because of our Fano connections, another auntie, <laughs> Auntie Turkey, who catered the event uh, at the Party Māori Club and is one of the founding members of the Party Māori Club, swept me in under her wing and pulled me in under the door. So she's a bit of a saviour, really, right from the very get-go. And you talk about how your mother used to drag you to school with a bag full of clothes. You're in your pajamas, and 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 push you out and said, you know, go to it. You must be there. That's right, Mum. Whatever I was wearing, whatever I'd slept in, I'm wearing that. She chucks me in the car. She takes me to the front gate of the party of primary school. My uh, nan used to be the principal there, but when I was born, she had a stroke, so they were replaced by another leader of that school. And she would drop me off to the front door of my classroom, and I was received there by uh, Nanny Kahu, Nanny Hui, who was actually the one who leads the karanga to the song Four Years. So really, really oh. close connections to the Pātea Māori Club. We'll talk about that later. Okay, I, so I want to find out what, what didn't you like about school? And as a teacher now, how would you approach a kid like you? So what was it about I school wa- first? Yeah. I think I'd walk into classrooms real high alert. I think I had a pretty low level of trust as a young person. I think it was pretty general of many of the places and many of the people I came up with and across during my young age. And there was just a massive guard that came up. And I think what I was seeking first and foremost was a connection with those who were in front of me. And anyone I failed to make a connection with as a person, not as a symbol of authority, we sort of clashed a little bit. And I think one of the hard parts as I reflect on my time through school is how antagonistic a lot of my relationships were. 
some of the things we say now in the classroom is there always has to be an adult in the classroom and that should be the adult in the classroom it should never have to be the kid and i think you know a lot of my teachers i think i was built from a little bit of a different cloth and they just struggled to connect with me i think it was easier just to chuck me out in the hallway and i spent most of my primary school out in the kakaramea school hallway uh, then you know try and bridge that gap Okay, so how would you, and how do you, you're a teacher now, um, how do you approach a child like, and I assume you would see them, um, a, a child like yourself? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, and you, you deal with children like me almost every day within the school, within schooling systems, within the school I work in, and schools across New Zealand. And there's a there's a bit of an art to it. You, you have to bring your strengths to the surface. So people come from different places. Mine tends to be a little bit of a humor. I tend to make fun of myself and that really disarms kids immediately. They're like, oh, who is this adult who's you know teasing themselves? I'd be, oh, you know, I'm sure if I was a kid too, I wouldn't want to talk to this ginger teacher who's talking to me about my uniform. You can look at a little bit of a laugh and then you might ask them sort of who they connect to. Who are your people here at school? Who are your favorite teachers? What are your favorite subjects? And you take this really long route before you get to talk about what you need to talk about within that moment. You build that relationship first. You build that level of trust first. You disarm any of that guard that comes up almost immediately, especially for our kids who come from some really hard places, who have had some really hard lives. They need that trust there before they're willing to be vulnerable with you. Right. Uh, the truancy figures in New Zealand, I mean, we do have a real problem. And I think there was a figure at the end of last year which showed about 9,000 children were missing from the education system altogether. And I know COVID has had an effect. What do you think we need to be doing better? I think when I... It's one of the things I do in my role as a year nine dean at Spotswood College is I'm often connecting with whānau and trying to rebuild the attendance. So we tend to think about it in terms of attendance rather than truancy or anything like that. And what's really important as you approach it is you approach the problem as if it's separate from the whānau involved, separate from the kid involved, and you're collaborating to solve that particular problem rather than pointing fingers and you know making clear that whatever's happening isn't good enough. So one of the things I'll do is I'll go and visit Fano at their houses. I'll sit down with Fano. We'll have a little bit of a talk because sometimes schools are a really hard place for them to come in. They've not had a positive schooling history. They've not had a positive learning experience there. So it's a place of some real heaviness or some real trauma. I know even my own mother would not go to school interviews or anything like that by a single year in the whole of my schooling experience because she just felt judged the moment she walked into the door. So you go into their safe territory, you greet them, you do everything you need to do to build that trust. And then you start trying to figure out what the problem is, what needs to happen. And you have to be a little bit creative sometimes. Right. Okay. Let's talk about your novel, The Bone Tree. And uh, it is the story of two brothers, Kauri and Black, growing up in, in Taranaki and in, in poverty, um, surviving the underclass of Aotearoa. It is a beautiful story which touches on intergenerational trauma, uh, the uplift of children, uh, uh, but it's also really deep, unflinching exploration of sibling love. But you didn't set out to write about two brothers, did you? No, I think when I began writing this story, I was really infatuated with the relationship between fathers and sons, particularly my own relationship with my father, who was a iwi historian, who had lived a really tough life himself and was 
at the beginning of my life and especially as I grew a little bit older he was really trying to sort of drag himself out of some of those darker places he had been in he's a real hero in my life a real superstar and I think I was trying to figure out where that comes from and one of the really hard parts about being a young person growing up is not only do you have so little control of your own life you kind of get thrown into a household thrown into the family but you actually have so little idea of the history that is informing all of these people around you and so I wanted to think really deeply around what kind of forces shaped my father and his father and ultimately would come to shape me. Right, but and so you've got a good relationship with your dad, but but the story you wrote was very different, wasn't it? It was about shaking off and not becoming, you know, like your father. So what changed? I think, I think I've developed a really positive relationship with my father. I think growing up, we had a much more complicated relationship. All of my siblings had a complicated relationship with both of our parents. You know, we were born and raised in Patia. Patia has an average annual income of about $19,000. So you can imagine what that kind of life looked like in terms of drugs, in terms of alcohol, in terms of uh, visits from the police, in terms of our relationship with our institutions of education, our institutions of health. And so I've really come to appreciate and admire that through coming to appreciate the history that shaped them and the amount of sheer willpower and strength to overcome that and become this person he's become today. I think just as Cody and Black transform across the story, they lose their father really early in the story, but it would have been interesting as those boys transformed, how their father might have transformed if he wasn't robbed of his life. Right. Okay. You pulled on also a lot of elements that um, are still very real today. The intergenerational trauma, uh, stolen land, child uplifts. In effect, you did reference, um, I think, a recent event in your in your story about uh, children being taken from their families and put into state care. Uh, is there a particular message that you want readers to take away? Hmm. It's a question I get asked a lot. I think, you know, it's my job as a writer to write, to write the experiences I know, to write the lives I know, to share the stories of Patia. We have a lot of our whānau and te haka and do their job in that space. And it's my job to do my job in this space, careful, to do it circumspectly and to do it well. And so I don't necessarily imbue any of my messages within stories, but try and represent the reality. So it may be a mirror to those who know these experiences and it may provide some insight to those who don't know them. Can you just, uh, now I've sort of explained what the bone tree is about, but in your words, can you just uh, tell the listener what it is about, what, what they can expect from it? I think one of the biggest questions that sit at the core of the story is what happens when the systems that are meant to protect us prey on us. And so the whānau involved, Cody and Black in particular, are sort of subject to so many forces outside their control and they're trying to navigate it as best as they can. And we spoke a little bit earlier about the attendance problem we have at school. And one of the things that sits at the heart of the problem is a distrust between whānau and education, not to mention this, the physical and economic bar and cultural barriers that exist between whānau and school but also just the distrust that has developed across time. And many whānau have many horrific stories of them and schools, and certainly my whānau and myself and my father and his father and his father and his father, 
or have some really complicated relationships with, with these systems, with school in particular, but also with our uh, systems of law and our systems of health. And so it's really thinking about and exploring how two young men without their parents, without anything to protect them from these systems and these forces, how they may navigate them. Right. Now, it took you five years to write the book, didn't it? That's right. Okay. Would you, why, why so, I mean, you know, oh, I say why so long? I don't know how long it, it, it takes to write a book, but did it did it change and did it evolve? I know you first started out writing, you know, wanting to write about a father-son relationship and then it became this sibling relationship. How How did it evolve over those five years? I think to my mind, the story is still about a father and his son that Cody is still exploring that relationship between himself and his father, though his father has passed on, and he's trying to get a better grip of how his father has left some seeds inside himself that he doesn't necessarily want to see bear fruit. Uh, but certainly the relationship between Cody and Black is almost him taking the role of father within the household and trying to um, do his best not to further seed those seeds within him, within his younger brother, who he sees as... Uh, quite far away from his father, doesn't seem to have really taken in his footsteps the same way Cody has found himself. But I think the book has sort of transformed me across time. The writing and the work within it has certainly transformed. It took five years because I'm so new to this world. Really, I started writing with the book. The book is the first thing I really had written. I've published many short stories in the meanwhile, but it took me a long time just to figure out what exactly writing can and should look like and how to really bring life into these stories. And I don't think of Cody and Black as characters. They, they are real life. I see these boys every day at school. I saw these boys every year growing up. These boys sit with me in some um, strange way as well. But I think the reason it took five years is really me developing the skills necessary to tell the story well. Right. Now, do you will you read it to your students? No. No. Will you encourage them to no. read it? <laughs> I think that's kids have started to figure out now that Amato Idana is a writer. Up until now, about 90% of kids at school had no idea that I'd lived this life outside of school. Some of really? them knew I was a cage fighter and a kickboxer, but none of them knew I wrote. But now I'm appearing on RNZ and everywhere else and everyone's <laughs> sort of starting to figure it out. Why? Why haven't you shared that with them? Because school's not about me, school's about them, it's about helping them become the kinds of people they want to be, it's about helping them to navigate that system, and mm. I share only so much of myself so as to better relate to the kids, but really at this age in their lives, they're interested in themselves, they're interested in their peers, they've gone from five, six, seven, eight years old where they're in love with the adults around them and want nothing but their attention, and now in their teenage years, particularly at sort of 13 to 16, they're most interested in their peers. And so it's our job to help foster that relationship. Right. Uh, quite a few people are texting in saying, oh, gosh, I wish he was our teacher. What an in inspiring young man. Um, fantastic. Uh, now, tell us, because you've, you've mentioned it, the cage fighting. You left, you left school to take up, was it cage fighting full time? Yeah, that's right. So I had finished high school, then I went off to university and I, I wasn't my intention, but mum had made it really clear that uni was what you were going to do, whether you wanted to or not. Same way she dragged me into primary school, she dragged <laughs> me off to university. 
she saw, she recognized really early that despite some of my frustrations with our institutions of education, that that was going to be my elevator out of poverty. And so I was off to university, but what I managed to game at the same time is while I was getting my student allowance, while I was studying full time, I had just enough time to do all of them, to compete as a, a professional cage fighter, to train two to three times every day and commit myself to that world as well. So I managed to sort of game the system a little bit, appease mum, because mum was always going to be the ruler of the roost, but get what I needed out of it as well. Right. What is it that you enjoy about cage fighting? And also the you've got a very strong line of, of that kickboxing, uh, martial arts really, in, in your family, don't you? Yeah, martial arts was one of the ways in which dad transformed his life. It's one of the ways in which mum transformed her life. That's what I've come to really admire about my siblings. I have uh, four siblings, three of them are three, I have three sisters, and they've all been uh, combat sports athletes. When I was really young, my older sister went off and competed in the world championships in karate. My younger sister is still wow. competing in Kokushin. My younger brother had this really freaky power that I had never seen before, where he <laughs> would just touch people and they would just drop. Oh. I never had any of that sort of innate <laughs> ability, but I had the, the, the smarts to sort of gain my my uh, physical advantages to, um, I think, just go head to head with someone was was just appealed to me in this really innate, primal way. Would you encourage, uh, say, some of your students that you teach uh, to, to get into it? Yeah, well, a lot of our young men are, they see that and they love it and they crave it, but they're not necessarily able to channel it in the right places. So I talk to our boys all the time to try to get them involved in the sport. But I think as I'm telling this story now, I, I think of a time in primary school. So I had this sort of hard time um, being within the classroom, but I also initially had this really hard time getting involved within everything outside of the classroom as well. I was a you know, really, really fair-skinned Māori boy and and I had a, some um, challenges in and around that. And one of the ways, and you know, it's a really ugly reality that I developed really strong relationships with my peers is through fighting on the playground. I was the, I was this name and that name and this name and that name. And then one day I had enough. I beat a kid up, and then we were all best friends the next day. Wow. Okay, so when you, uh, I'm just getting some lovely texts, and uh, Carmel said uh, the dignity that he that you allow uh, the tamariki just as it should be. Uh, all teachers have a lot to learn from him. So a lot of love coming in for you, Arana. Um, who were your role models and the influences in your life? I don't know that I necessarily had any role models. I think one of the reasons I had a really low level of trust as a young person is because I recognised probably too early how flawed the adults in my life were and even speaking to some of these adults as an adult now they they recognize us they they i knew and they knew they were doing the best with what they had at that time but it wasn't enough for a young person to develop a really um, high functioning lifestyle and so really what i was doing well probably the first half of my life is just rebelling against all the adults in my life trying to carve out a path that made sense to me, that aligned with sort of goodness and beauty and healthiness in so far as I understood that as a young person. So how did you make that transformation? I think I spent a lot of time by myself. I think I spent a lot of time exploring some of the ways um, my inner workings sort of pulled at secret strings inside myself. 
I think I watched the adults and tried to spend as much time with the adults as possible from a distance. I almost watched them the way you'd watch a lion, which is not from inside the cage, but outside the cage, and tried to get a sense of what was going wrong and what could be done in order to steer ourselves in the, in the right places. But I remember almost every night for hours before I'd sleep, I would just replay my entire day and I'd replay the entire days of the adults in my life as well and try to make sense of what was happening and why it was happening so as to gain some kind of control over it. Right. Uh, and in Pātea, and as you mentioned earlier, was it your grandparents who started the uh, Pātea Māori Club? No, no. My uh at that point, the Pātea Freezing Works had closed, and so essentially the whole town overnight was uh, rendered unemployed, and so a lot of our whānau fled. At that point, my um, koro went over to PPE schemes and that kind of thing, mm. um, which is to say that they went and worked on local marae, and at that point, I just don't think he had the capacity to do all of that, to raise his four children, and then to join the Pātea Māori Club. He's in the Pātea Māori Club now, but he certainly wasn't in there when they um, hit the hit the radio. Right, okay. We're going to play a, a track from the Pātea Māori Club shortly. Um, what, just just tell us, I mean, how pa- growing up in Pātea and what it is like now, um, you know, what can you tell us a little bit about growing up there and, and how things have changed? Well, everybody knew each other and so there was this real intimacy and in, in all the ways a family can be beautiful and all the ways a family can be a little bit chaotic sometimes and so we're left to be free range we could do whatever we wanted we always had eyes on us no matter where we went which meant there's nothing we ever got away with good bad or somewhere in between right that you mentioned yeah sorry carry on i think now we see much of the same lifestyles there's been some some plagues that have swept through the town when the um, synthetic drugs swept through it it really wreaked some havoc on the town and the town still has a really really low average annual income um, bumped up only a little higher than nineteen thousand dollars as it was back when i was a little bit younger the school is the highest employer in the town and then i think beyond that they really only have a, a dairy and a bottle store but families are still tight there's still a real bond there's a real love and affinity for that town despite all the hardship I think trauma can be this really strong cohesive right so you believe there is there is hope for that town I think there's hope in every single individual I think there's hope in that town I think that town is certainly going to see a resurgence I don't know if it's ever going to become the kind of place other places have become over the 40 years since um Pātea since the poor year was released in the Pātea Māori Club Apart, sorry, the party of Freezing Works closed. But I think you know, everyone there is striving towards a better life. Brilliant. Uh, well, congratulations again on your book, The Bone Tree. It's a, it's a fabulous read. Um, yeah, I was in tears at, at the end of it, but they were, they were happy tears. And I, I think uh, it would be lovely if we all had a brother uh, like Cody in your book. Hmm. I think so too. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Ayrana Ngariwa, and the book is The Bone Tree.